Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Uh, Josh, great to be able to catch up with you. Um, There's obviously so much interest in uh, real estate, real estate investing, and also just owning real assets. Uh, For investors and viewers to understand and know, you did manage the largest REIT fund in Canada through CI and now have a bit of a a new venture, um, but of course still focused on real estate and assets, so real assets. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what this new fund actually is? Yeah, sure. And it's great to be on here and great to see you, Catherine. And, and so just as a little bit of backstory, uh, I managed global REITs at CI uh, for about the, the past 10 years. And, um, and it was a very large portfolio of real estate. And so when you're managing that type of size, like four or $5 billion worth of global real estate, what you start to see is you start to get shown a lot of really interesting opportunities. And what that means is we were, we were getting access to some really, really attractive uh, investment ideas, like uh, for example, we anchored India's first ever REIT uh, with Blackstone, and we came in as a very early uh, investor on the IPO of a, of a group uh, called e, um, ESR, which is the largest Asia Pacific focused uh, warehouse platform for, for e-commerce with a group called Warburg Pincus. And so we were seeing more and more of those really interesting opportunities, but not all of them we're in the public markets. And so when you have a, a mutual fund that's, that, that has liquidity uh, requirements, you're kind of restricted in terms of how many private real estate investments you can do. So we saw a really big opportunity there. And that was to launch something much more substantial on the private real asset side, leverage our, our global uh, scale, our reputation, our relationships, to go and launch products for CI's investors. And not only that, you know, our investors, uh, to give them access to types of assets that they can't normally access. Understood. And so with that said then, as you launched um, recently in April, what is your approach? What is the prism that you're using in terms of determining where you want to invest? I don't know if we should start globally or maybe more, it's probably more thematic, um, given that we've got COVID-19 changing so many behaviors. Yeah, and you know, the there's a lot that has happened and has been accelerated through COVID and because of COVID. Um, so we'll start kind of just away from that and just kind of macro financial markets, what we think that means for real estate. And we think that that is a continuation of something that was already happening, which is, you know, there will be fits and starts of, of different types of inflation coming out of COVID. But, but our view is that um, that will be relatively muted over the long term. Interest rates will stay relatively low. And in that context, uh, investors look at the landscape and they say, okay, you've got stock markets that are trading at, at all-time highs and can come with volatility. You've got fixed income markets that are giving you, you know, next to, to no yield at all. How do you save today 
to ensure that you have wealth for the future. And so is there something else that you can throw into that mix of a stock and bond portfolio? And so what we saw over the past decade and a half is that the largest institutions have been making that shift quite substantially, where they're taking capital out of their equity portfolio, a little bit out of their bond portfolio, and they're going into to alternative assets and, and included in that bucket is are things like real estate and infrastructure um, to, to provide really good diversification and, and extra return potential um, in those asset classes. And so part of our view at Axia is that that is gonna continue in a much more substantial way. Uh, there are still you know, a very large amount of money in negative yielding assets uh, that needs to start moving out or low yielding assets that need to start moving out and that the retail investor is going to have to continue following that institutional investor. And that means they're gonna to need to increase their allocations to, to hard assets like real estate and infrastructure. So you know, if we end it there on the financial perspective and we say, okay, well, does that mean that all types of real assets are gonna do well? Uh, no, not necessarily. And what we, we've seen over the last 20 years is that in this declining interest rate environment, um, absent any major technological disruptions, most types of real estate did pretty well. And so most investors uh, made money just buying the asset and holding it. And that was a, that was a good enough strategy. But what we're seeing now, uh, you know, we've, we've definitely seen in the last five to 10 years, and, and we think, and that's kind of part of our house view, is that there are going to be more and more disruptors to to real estate how it gets used what type of real estate is valuable so so josh let's then pick up on um on these different themes and and you use the word disruption and you know i think when we think about disruption we don't normally think about real estate even though i think we can all appreciate that um, things have changed uh, during COVID, and the question is whether or not they go back do we actually go back to the office um, you know, are we excited to do that? Do we, are we excited to go back to the, the fitness studios or are we going to continue to do it at home? And I, it seems as though it's almost a, a bifurcated, um, question or it's, it's a big debate and you're on one side or the other. Um, what do you see happening? I, I feel like this is what you have to get right to get real estate, right? Um, there's so many other aspects though, but, but this is a big one. You do. Um, and I'm going to back up a second and just talk about real estate and, and how you make money in real estate, right? And so uh, you buy an asset, you collect rent, and you hope that you can increase rent over time. Um, but somewhere along the way, you're going to have to put a lot of money into that real estate to improve it or keep it relevant, okay? And based on one's understanding of a cycle of real estate, when you go in and buy a certain type of real estate, you have a pretty good understanding of the type of capital needs that that real estate is going to require. And I think that the industry has viewed real estate in that lens for the last couple of decades, because there hasn't been a lot to kind of come in and change all of that. And so I think that's where the disruption happens is, you know, what changes in our behavior are going to require landlords to have to rethink all of their assumptions when they're investing in real estate. And you know, you mentioned office. There are probably about 20 different subsectors of real estate, and, and office is one of them, and it's at the forefront of the conversation right now. Um, but if, you know, the 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 first one to get really disrupted in a huge way were malls, right? And um, that really kind of started, you know, the in 
two decades ago when Amazon got involved in the game. And they kind of, you know, they, they, they had their growth, they weren't profitable, but they had investors to believe in the story, capitalize the business while they came and just ate the lunch of every retailer out there. And the mall owner argument at that point was Amazon will never work because it's not profitable. Online, the online business doesn't work. And so everybody's gonna need to come to the mall all the time to do their shopping because we're gonna see all of these failures of these e-commerce companies. And they were comparing Amazon to nothing more than you know another version of the Sears catalog. And um, that is the first mistake. If you're, if you're calling one of the richest people in the world nothing more than, than a Sears catalog replacement, <laughs> I think you're missing the, the point. The point is that there was something much more substantial coming. And that was that um, Amazon had really figured out a way to bring users onto its platform and sacrifice profitability for quite some time. And if they had enough investors to believe in the story, they could do that for a really long period of time. And then all of a sudden, what you start to see is all those users uh, get used to this Amazon service, and then they don't need to go out to fulfill their needs as much anymore. Um, but Amazon was just kind of, you know, the beginning case of that. And then you saw all of these other retailers, um, e-commerce retailers pop up and really start to disrupt it. And you saw groups like Shopify come in. And what they're doing is they're enabling that mom and pop or individual to create their own business. So we're starting to see, I mean, we're not starting to see, we've been seeing for the last couple of decades, this decentralization theme where retail is just one of them. It's not just... Um, the control is not just in that physical retailer anymore. It's it, the control is in the tech industry that is now enabling individuals to, to have more control over how they shop, more control over how they um, start up a retail business. And ha they have more and more options on the place that they choose to conduct this. So that means that one central piece of real estate, which was the mall, uh, which was highest which, which was most valuable because of the amount of people within it, mm. is starting to see that value erode and decline because you don't need, those people don't need to come to the mall to do those same actions. Mm -hmm. So that was you know, the, the first major one. And now the question is, well, okay, where does that happen in other, in other areas? And so you look at things like movie theaters and, and what Netflix has done to that business and to the value that people place on actually going to a physical location to watch a movie when they can do it pretty easily on Netflix. And then, you know, the big obvious one that you mentioned that's right in front of us right now is, is the office environment. And what do people, how do people choose to work and what do employers really wanna see? And, and that is up for debate. And I think that there are really good arguments on both sides, but I don't think, any of that negates the fact that we have more and more options to do things in a more decentralized nature more and more. And I don't think that wave is going away. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got even, even within office users, like the big corporations themselves, you've got huge disparities in, in their views, right? Where, where you've got, you know, the Goldman Sachs, and I think the Morgan Stanleys and JP Morgan's of the world saying, hey, everybody back to the office, you know, as soon as possible. And then you have uh, UBS coming out and saying we're going to adopt a, a hybrid, a hybrid um, work model, and mm -hmm. I think it's a little TBD on on what what um, who wins in that. But I'm inclined to think it's going to be a much more hybrid model. 
Um, the reason is, is a fewfold. One is that I think that as a, you know, to, to keep yourself competitive as an employer and attract the top talent, you need to attract, um, you, you need to offer flexibility. And yeah. I, I think you're going to be, you know, I don't think you can look at it if you're a financial institution, you can't look at it as just competing against other financial institutions. You're competing against the tech industry. The tech industry is offering more and more flexibility to its workers. And when they're, and when they're encouraging their workers to go into their, their offices, they're spending a ton of money on these huge office campuses. And so as an office landlord, what does that mean? That means that a, back to that CapEx and how much money goes into your building, that means that a lot more money is going to have to go in to your offices, either by yourself or by the, the office user to make that office more attractive. And as we see more offices get developed with these newer, you know, flexibility and wellness type of concepts, that older office stock has a bit of a challenge. And that yeah. is how do they keep themselves relevant? Um, so I think that that would make me a little bit more cautious on just going, buying an office and placing the same assumptions today that I would place on it in the, you know, in the last 10 years. Yeah, no, that, that's a fair point. And I, I think, um, Look, I think that there needs to be flexibility for sure. You know, I think that um, there, that need has been there for a long time. You know, when I look at some of the, um, you know, working parents that I have worked with over the years, it's, it's just, you know, you're two and a half hours in the car, you're stressed when you get to work because someone was late leaving the house, your child, et cetera. Like it's, it's quite unbelievable. And I think flexibility, you know, lends itself probably to a healthier life as well. At the same time, though, I think it also depends on where you're at in your career you know, in the sense that, I mean, if I was 28 at Goldman, I used to work at Goldman, um, there would be no way I'd be at home if, if my, uh, you know, colleagues, but you're all competing, um, were going into the office. So that's going to be a big factor too. And I think it just really kind of depends on age and stage and desire of your career as well, which it's hard to sit at home if everybody or if the majority is going to be in the office. I, I completely agree. And I mean, and, and you know, I'm seeing the different, you know, the, the different areas of the spectrum. My previous role managing global REIT money, um, your head is down, you're, you're reading annual reports all day, you're on the phone talking to, to companies, uh, and you have meetings come in, but they're not all the time all day long. And so working remotely was actually pretty seamless and pretty easy. And then when I moved over to launch Axie Real Assets with, with this, this team, this young team that were that we have and that we're building, like that in-person time is extremely valuable. So just turn around and you know talk out ideas rather than having to schedule a Zoom meeting. Right. Uh, but I, I do think though that when we look at a corporation, because if I were to go and walk all the floors of CI or of any of the other or of, of a major financial institution, um, I'm not sure I would see a lot, a whole lot of departments where that creative collaborative function is really important. There are certainly, there are certainly those groups where it is really important, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of groups where, you know, a lot of people just put their heads down, they work, there's no social aspect to it. There's no ladder climbing aspect to it. And so, you know, one of the things that I would question is, you know, just what percentage of a company is in that camp that you just described? I think it's a very important um, percentage, yeah. but I think, I think it might actually be a smaller percentage than, uh, you know, than, than, than some would initially think. The other thing I would say is, and you know, it's a bit of a worry for me, is that when COVID happened and everybody was, you know, forced to work remotely, 
Um, one thing that I saw go away was a lot of this talk of technological displacement of workers. Uh, because what we saw was that, like a lot of companies came and they just, you know, they just had to batten down the hatches, had to get everybody mobilizing towards their same goal, move everybody online, and all of their steps towards like real kind of innovative efficiency initiatives kind of, I think, just went on halt. Um, but I think coming out of this, what you're going to see is that these companies now are able to see how you work much more effectively than they ever could when they saw you physically in the office because they can track everything that you're doing online. They can measure your productivity. Uh, they can see how dialed in you are to your system. And I think that you'll find that companies start to see that they can gain efficiencies, um, AKA that they might not need the same level of, of, of humans doing the same amount of tasks. Hopefully it's the other way and they say, okay, well, we can find um, we can layer in technology, we can use these underutilized people and we can, you know, we can have them do more things and, and you know, and, and make them more creative and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but so my other, so that, that is part of my other worry is that uh, what we start to see is that that bigger group of, of kind of um, the workforce that does a lot, but, it, but the creative aspect does not need as much. My, my other worry is that technology starts to starts to fill in that void. And yeah. So and there's, and there's job losses. Yeah. I, I have that significant concern as well that, you know, um, or, or there's the argument to be made that, well, you're not driving into the office. Um, you don't contribute to the culture, uh, in the same way. Therefore the value of what we pay you should be lower. That, that, that's a real concern that, that I also have. Um, all of that is yet to be determined. And, and I guess my question, Josh would also be though, you know, having said all of that, have we not seen some of the big e-commerce companies uh, increase their office space, number one? And number two, when we think about the pandemic and how closely we used to sit next to each other, um, you know, that's how the colds always spread in the wintertime. So in some ways, the other side of the argument is, well, we'll need more office space, bigger office space to keep people a little bit more apart. Uh, yeah, and I think that's a very real thing as well. Um, and I think it means that that just kind of brings up the level of competition for all of the office players out there. So if you have the resources um, to reconfigure space and, and spend some money on it, then I think you can be in a good position. I think if you're if you're an office developer and you understand all of these changing dynamics, you're gonna, you know, you're 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 gonna configure your spaces according to that, and you're gonna provide the right types of services. Then I think there will be significant demand for that. People need um, places that they feel comfortable in and and that have you know that align with um you know with their creativity and how they work and 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 if it's if it's health and wellness and other things that you need to implement into the office then then that's probably going to work and i think my point is is that all the rest of that office stock out there that doesn't have it is going to face competition from that new i don't think you can just go and shove people in to the offices that we were used to seeing yeah, no, fair, fair point. Um, in terms of where the opportunities are, if we were talking about e-commerce and uh, maybe this move away from the mall, what would be the the counter to that in terms of where you would want to invest? So it's a good question because we're all about focusing on, you know, we in my view is that we are continuing to move into a more and more decentralized world. And that just means people are going to be able to carry out way more activities from 
way more places than they ever were able to before. So then the question is, okay, if they're not going and carrying out those activities in that one space that we were used to, what is gonna be the, the type of asset that enables them to carry out these decentralized functions? And if you look at something like a mall, the offset to that would be something like industrial warehouses. And um, the reason is that, you know, packages need to flow through those to get to the consumer within the one hour or the one day timeframe. And those that own those industrial assets closer and closer to population centers are gonna do extremely well. And when they do extremely well, uh, that means that they're gonna be able to take up rents quite a bit more. And so if you look at um, industrial REITs, for example, Pre-pandemic, so at the peak of their valuation, just before we went into the major lockdowns, from that point, they're still they're up like 25%. They continue to do extremely well, and uh, and we think that that will continue. And from your perspective, are you out there buying? I would think you're probably doing public and private investments. So would you be buying some of the industrial REITs, and or if you're looking to buy more on the private side? How difficult is it to find those opportunities? From from my understanding, it takes a number of years to get approval to be able to build uh, an industrial uh, warehouse. And, and therefore, I guess that's also why the public companies are, the, those stocks are moving higher. But how do you kind of balance those two items? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, in our current form right now, we're, we're mostly focused on private. And, but I would say that the, the public players like a Prologis or you know, any, of the, any of the major public players in industrial land, um, are really strong investment candidates. And, and the reason is, is that not only do they have the assets, yeah, their stocks are, are very highly valued, but a group like Prologis, they've got such a network of these assets that now that they can implement technology to leverage that network and, so, and, and they can get smarter about how they price their rents. And so when a tenant um, moves out or renews their rent, they can take up the rent by 20 or 30%. You can do that when you have that scale. And so there's a huge advantage there. Um, on in the private market side, you're, you're absolutely right. It's it's getting harder and harder to find deals in industrial. You're you're paying up for it for sure. So a big part of the bet is going to be that you pick the right market, the right type of asset, where you can identify rent growth. And then you know the the work you have to do on that is more than just underwriting the property itself. It's really making sure that you understand the market dynamics to try to to because you are kind of paying for that rent growth there. Um, part of our strategy, when we look at property types that are either hard for us to go and acquire individually, or property types where we don't have the deep operating expertise of actually running them, is to come in as a capital partner to existing operators who can use our capital. And there we can, you know, use, uh, you know, leverage our expertise to kind of help work with them. Um, they've got the platform, they've got access to the assets. And, uh, and that's how we can try to access these, these assets. And, and what's an example of perhaps something that you're looking at right now? I know you, you know, don't reveal anything obviously, but, uh, but you know, what, what, what's something somewhere that is piquing your interest? Well, there's a lot of things piquing our interest that, that we think look very attractive. And so um, one in particular is the grocery space. And so when we think of, grocery and how it fits into this new world, there are a lot of changes going on in retail and a lot of changes going on in grocery as well. Um, and the major change in grocery is this e-commerce penetration in, in, in grocery. 
And we saw that you know, super accelerate through COVID and we think it's gonna continue to accelerate. Now the question is, what does that do to the grocery store? And so you have these big players come in like Ocado, that, that UK based group that comes and builds these like million square foot fully automated distribution facilities that are designed to uh, have a whole bunch of uh, SKUs within them and deliver to customers. And they've come and, and in Canada, they've partnered with Sobeys and in the US, they've partnered with Kroger. And those are some of the most dominant grocers in their respective countries. And so then the question is, okay, what, is that, what does that do to the grocery store? And so one, we're seeing that a lot of the, the fulfillment that is gonna happen from these big fulfillment centers uh, is touching the grocery store. So the grocery store in the vast majority of cases acts as that last mile distribution hub. Uh, where it gets delivered to the consumer through the grocery store, but it doesn't happen in all of the cases. And then the other that we're seeing is, so if you think of like Ocado as kind of that macro fulfillment strategy, on the other side, we're seeing micro fulfillment strategies. So you're seeing grocery stores really explore the idea of creating these micro fulfillment um, areas within their grocery store that are also fully automated. They're much cheaper to implement than a macro fulfillment center. And that kind of converts the grocery store from what was traditionally like a 100% retail focused place to something that's now quasi warehouse or quasi industrial. Uh, and if you look at the, the rents that grocers pay, it is quickly becoming, um, you know, the industrial rents are quickly rising to kind of catch up. So it, it, it kind of makes sense to make that trade off. And we think that the majority of grocery stores are very well positioned for this new world and this new supply chain. And uh, we've got a lot of deep expertise on, on that side of things. And so, uh, you know, we've got access to, to pretty interesting opportunities there. So you, th you think that the way that groceries are already um, constructed, just in terms of their store and their footage, that they can uh, reconfigure what they own and create a warehouse with, with some of it? Is that what they're going to be doing? That sounds like it would be an expensive undertaking. It's for sure an expensive undertaking. But if you're going to get into any kind of online game, it's going to be expensive. So it's either uh, don't spend and don't adapt or spend and, and you kind of have to, right? And so then the question is, how are you going to spend? Do you choose to spend your money on that micro, that macro fulfillment or the micro fulfillment? I don't think every single grocery store is going to have to do that. And I think what is going to uh, determine that is its location and its ability to, uh, to access consumers everywhere. And I, I, I don't think you're going to see it as much in some of the non-urban areas. Because if you look at an urban area, there's like a huge catchment area where it makes sense to go and spend the money on that uh, on that conversion because you can access you know, a bunch of customers. Um, so I think even beyond just the technological changes that go on in grocery, I think secondary markets, and this is another thing I've been focused on a lot lately mm -hmm. is, is the future of secondary markets and kind of you know, quasi-de-urbanization. Uh, we think secondary markets are actually gonna look pretty attractive because they're harder to disrupt on the delivery angle and the grocery store itself still acts as a critical fulfillment center, regardless of whether or not you reconfigure the store. So what does that really mean then when you're talking about secondary markets? Are you, are you saying it, are you saying 
that you want exposure to some of the grocery stores that are more in the suburbs and outskirts and cottage country? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Where there's, you know, there's still a population that uh, needs to eat and, and, and needs to access their groceries, but it's not a market where Amazon, where it's worth it for Amazon to just come in and, and launch, you know, one of their yeah. hybrid grocery stores. Like it's, it's still pretty well insulated. Got it. Um, it, it's amazing though, in some ways though, I mean, you know, one pushback I would have is that, you know, we are start, starting to see food inflation. You, you know, we started the conversation saying that you don't see interest rates, you know, rising over the long term. Um, and I think that that that's uh, certainly a view that I hear from, you know, a number of very smart people I speak to regularly. Um, you know, but we are seeing food inflation. And I just think that there's an extra cost in terms of if you have your food delivered versus not. I don't know that people can really afford that service. It's a service. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, you know, when we're talking about where e-commerce goes in grocery, we're not talking about, you know, like a 50 to 100%. We're, you know, it's, we're still in the single digits. And so the question is, does it go from seven to 20 or something? Um, but there are going to be a lot of considerations to that, right? And so I don't, my bet is not that we go completely, but by any means that we go completely virtual on grocery. We, we, think the, we think the store and people going into the store is going to, you know, is going to comprise the biggest amount of grocery demand. There will definitely be constraints and costs is, is, is definitely one of them. Okay. Um, want to get your take as well in terms of apartments and condos and cottages. And, uh, and, and I, I don't know, are you in, my question is going to be about the United States and, and so many people having moved um, to Miami out of New York because of tax uh, advantages in Florida versus New York. I mean, it's pre been pretty amazing. And, and to watch these big investment banks also have larger offices in, in Miami. Um, are you guys looking at Miami and are you also perhaps at some point looking at New York as those prices decline? I, I personally think at some point New York's going to be a really interesting opportunity, but I also think Miami is. Yeah, no, I, I agree with both of those statements. Um, I think you need to get price discovery still in some of the major markets like New York or, or uh, Toronto for that. I mean, Toronto is a different story than New York, I think. So maybe we'll leave that out of the conversation for now. But you, I, I think you need uh, the right price and you need to you need to get price discovery to see to, to you know to see if what you're getting in New York really makes sense just yet from um, not only like a yield perspective, but you kind of need to get comfortable with where rental rates shake out and what population is doing and what those decisions are. And it's a little bit hard to draw a conclusion from what happened during COVID and projected into the future because it was such a unique circumstance. I think. I think you know, the, you know, barring everything that's going on with climate change, I think weather is weather, and there's a there's you know there's a really uh, strong incentive to go to Miami um, if you can if you can pull it off. And I think company, I think the the efforts that the mayor has been making to attract talent from the tech side, um, not only from the tech side but from the financial services side, I think the ability of people to work remotely more and more is going to create more demand in places like Miami. Um, I think that the ability of states to offer lower tax to people living there is you know, gonna be a huge benefit that just doesn't really go away. 
so I would say that I'm pretty bullish on a market like Miami, certainly in the medium term. Beyond that, the climate change thing is a, is a real discussion to be had and what that does to, um, uh, you know, to bo both on things like, like extreme weather damage to, to buildings there, to sea levels and, and, and what that does in the whole water system in Miami. It's, it's you know, those are things that are probably concerning like, like over, the, over the longer term. Uh, but I do, I do like the market. And so from a housing perspective, how are you and your team um, looking at the changing dynamics and, and where you see opportunities? Uh, is it in condos, apartments, rental, rental apartments, or multifamily, single home family? I think it's, it's in all of them. It just depends on what geography you're, you're talking about. The single family for rent market in the US has been a sector that just kind of came up out of nowhere through the dust of the credit crisis. And so what that meant is that there was a bunch of, there were a bunch of foreclosed homes in 2008, 2009, and some major institutions came in and they bought thousands of tens of thousands of them. And when they bought them, they bought them under the premise that they were getting you know, really cheap real estate that was going to recover substantially. And so they got that. But what I don't think any of them really realized that they had was the beginning blueprint for like a fully institutionalized business. Because then what they did was they went, they bought tens of thousands of these, they owned them all over the country. At the same time that apartment owners who, you know, if you're an apartment owner, you own something with like 100 units. So you can really scale that because you, um, you have very few people that have to manage that building and you have a whole bunch of people there. It's harder when you've got single family homes that are kilometers away from each other. Uh, so there's a lot of criticism from the multifamily community saying that you're never gonna scale this business. And so what that forced the single family players to do is invest really heavily in their technology and really you know, understanding um, the benefits of fully smart enabling a property, for example. But then not only that, figuring out what you can do with the data that you learn from, from your platform to get smarter on how you price things. And, and then to use that scale to go and, and, um, and get better pricing with your suppliers, for example. And so what we started to see is that the single family for rent REITs in, in the US have done extremely well huh. and plays to part of this decentralization theme that I'm thinking about is that um, people, if they don't have to work from a certain office, and they don't have to be downtown 100% of their time anymore, do they start to value space more and more? And I think my answer is yes. And that I think single family for rent homes will continue to do extremely well. Um, a multifamily, I think it depends on the market that you're talking about. And so let's just take Toronto as an example. Uh, again, COVID caused you know massive issues for, for several months in the in that type of asset. Uh, but the fact is that there's just a, a huge shortage of housing in Ontario, in Canada, but in Ontario in particular, and then closer to the Toronto region. So if you're a landlord, uh, you're paying up, you're paying up a lot if you wanna buy uh, an apartment in Toronto, but part of the, there's two things that you're getting there. One, you're getting you know, almost all time low mortgage rates. So your yield over your mortgage rate is giving you a pretty healthy return right there. Uh, but then two, you're also getting assets that where you've, you know, you've 
got pretty good confidence that rents are going to be able to rise over some time. Now, there is a major issue in Toronto, and that's affordability. Um, and that hasn't been able to be solved yet. And so the, you know, the, what makes apartments in Toronto and Ontario attractive, but also a bit of a problem is that the government makes it really hard to go and build a bunch of this stuff. So there's caps on supply that are gonna keep the balance of power in favor of the landlords probably for, for some time. So mm -hmm. uh, then the question is, well, how do, we, how do we take care of both problems? How do we make sure the people in real estate make money? But more importantly, how do we make sure that people can afford and have a place to live? And that's something that really needs to be figured out. Right, and, and two items I wanna pick up uh, there. Um, one is when you talk about the operational efficiencies of the multi-family or single family home in the United States, and I, I remember that vividly actually having conversations with um, you know real estate companies in those days, looking at this asset class, um, that was one of the biggest hurdles. How, do you, how can you operate single family homes efficiently um, and then you did talk slightly about technology. So my question to you is, are you invested in any of the kind of real estate tech plays? Uh, we are not yet, but I think that's a big opportunity for us. So I've spent a lot of time uh, on the prop tech side of things and uh, was very early interested in it when I started to see some of the VC funding that was out there a couple of years ago on the prop tech side of things. Uh, I worked with Mars Discovery District as a, kind of a consultant on their real estate innovation side. And what we saw was that there are a lot of really smart people and there's a lot of capital available for them to create new attractive technologies for the real estate sector. The problem is, is that there are so many of them that you actually almost have more solutions than you have problems. So mm -hmm. the challenging thing is, is figuring out that there's a whole bunch of holes in my underwriting process and my thought process there. Um, but that said, I think that real estate technology is, is here to stay. And it's something that we're gonna be spending a lot of time thinking about. My preference when I was on the REIT side of things, for example, was to invest in the REITs themselves that were implementing a lot of this technology and saying, okay, I don't really care whether or not that technology is the thing of the future, but what I care about is that this real estate company is spending money almost like on their own R&D to make their business more competitive. So I think, you know, we're gonna play the technology space in, in a couple different ways. One is, you know, we're gonna be on the lookout for the right technologies to invest in or the right VC groups to invest with. Mm -hmm. um, but also we have to be spending a lot of time thinking about what technologies we wanna implement into our own, um, asset management or real estate functions. Got it. Um, the other point I wanted to pick up on because investors and viewers always care about this is, are you uh, at all surprised at the record prices we're seeing in Toronto, home prices the, and also the surrounding areas? No, given, given what COVID has done, um, I'm always surprised that Toronto in Ontario and Canada continues to do what it does. And I think, you know, maybe this is the sign of the market, but I've finally capitulated mentally and said, okay, this is just going forever. So um, I think what's happened here is what did COVID do? It let everybody live a much more, well, no, I won't even, it wasn't a flexible life because we had no options. We, we, we worked from home, whether or not we wanted to. And then it made us realize, okay, space is much more valuable. Um, 
And, and then it made us think, okay, well, if we go back to this hybrid model, do I really need to live in this little condo um, that I've been renting? But at the same time, if I had any kind of investable assets in the market, I did extremely well. So you have these, like this ability for down payments to get funded um, more than they were. And coupled with the mentality that, um, you know, space is, is a very valuable thing. And now actually with the work from home thing, you know, we can, we can enjoy this space even more. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, whether it was, you know, young people building up their own capital to do it or parents helping young people do it, the money seems to be there to, to allow this to happen. And so my view there is that Toronto is going to continue to be extremely unaffordable just due to the scare. Like if we're talking kind of single families or or even townhouses for that matter, I think condos might be something a little bit different. Um, It's going to continue to be unaffordable and difficult for the average person or even above average person to really afford. Um, But I think the work from home or the work remote culture is going to enable a lot more of these smaller towns um, to, to thrive. And so, you know, what I observe there is that we're in these smaller towns, you're st- you know, especially the university towns, um, we're starting to see, you know, more and more multiculturalism build up in those towns that you didn't really see before 20 years ago. And if, if somebody is looking to immigrate from another country into Canada, a lot of the times the first move would be to be into Toronto, but not downtown Toronto. That was not as affordable, but kind of getting towards the outskirts of Toronto because one, it was more affordable. And two, there was already a community of that culture there. Um, As Toronto and everything surrounding it becomes more unaffordable. And as these multicultural communities build up in these smaller towns, and as people are able to work remotely a lot more, uh, I'm pretty bullish on where those towns start to go in terms of their their home prices how do you capture that how do you capitalize on that from an investment perspective hard it's hard i mean it, like maybe if you do it personally i think <laughs> I think right now there's there's not a lot um i mean well you you can you can do apartments like you can you know there are there are groups that are that do apartments successfully in london ontario and in, in mm-hmm. kitchener and hamilton and um, and their ability to to acquire assets there for sure. Um, you can go and capitalize home builders and and participate that way. Um, I, I'm actually really curious and interested to see what happens. And this is you know by no means a foregone conclusion. But what I'm seeing in a lot of these smaller town markets is a lot of excess space out there, like a lot of retirees who. Um, don't want to be forced to go and live in a retirement home and are healthy enough not to have to, but have all of this extra space in their homes. And so I'm starting to see examples of co-living going on where you've got, you've got um, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting type of co-living where you have seniors from a certain country and you have students from that same country in that same town who also have their own issue and that's affordability. And so their option is to go and live with eight other students in a crammed apartment or to link up with somebody who's, you know, a a second or third bridged connection and share space in their home. Mm -hmm. And so you solve those two problems. You solve um, that senior not wanting to move out of their place and having a companion. And you solve the issue of affordability for some of these students. And it's not, you know, it's not the typical Canadian type of students where, you know, you're just looking to party and, and, and uh, have your own 
uh, have your own privacy. It's, it's, it's students that, you know, still respect the culture of the place that they came from and, and are able to, you know, to yeah. successfully co-live. And so I think that there's interesting things to be found there. And I think it's super early, but it's just something I'm curious about. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but, you know, I have to say when my mom moved from BC to Toronto, she, to, in order to pay for her university, she did that. She lived with an older woman to be able to pay off her bursaries and everything. So, okay. Well, yeah, well, if we're going, personal, circle. If we're going personal experiences that, you know, this is what my mom is doing. She's living, I mean, she's done it for the past five years, but has been living with students that are anywhere between 22 26 you know she cooks for them they cook for her it's like a family dynamic and, and her oh. mental health is probably better than it would have been uh if if she took another option definitely or just living alone absolutely um curious as well just we'll wrap it up in a couple minutes or moments here but um what about farmland when you think about some of the difficulties in the world and um i don't know protecting food source what are your and your team's thoughts there I mean, it's it's something we've very initially explored and need to do some more work on. But I, I the theme is very attractive to us for sure. Okay, and then what about uh, investing outside of the North American borders? Um, uh, has Europe looked interesting to you, or certain countries within Europe or the UK? What are your thoughts there? I think it's emerging markets that that look really interesting to me, um, and that kind of stems from some of the stuff that I mentioned at the beginning of uh, of our chat with what I saw in India, for example, and what I saw with the emergence of e-commerce or the the growth of e-commerce and the real estate that supports it in Asia. Uh, then the challenge is, you know, us being over here how do we really successfully navigate the landscapes over there? And, and what that means is that we have to come in with partners. And so one of the advantages that we have from our tenure in the real estate industry is knowing partners in a lot of those markets. And um, you know that's where I think it looks really interesting because what you see is real estate markets that are nowhere near mature. Um, that, and you know, for example, what got us really attracted to the warehouse business in Asia is one what e-commerce was doing and the penetration there and what technology was enabling all of that and you know the natural supply chains that were happening supply chain shifts that were happening there but but interestingly you know what we've seen in north america is that the yields you get on industrial real estate have come way down to below what you would get in office meaning the prices have increased more so right so they're more valuable that dynamic hasn't happened at all in in the Asian markets yet, and so you're you're still seeing a, a spread of the yields you can get on industrial. So we think that there was an interest. We thought that there was a very interesting opportunity there uh, when we did ESR, and we think that there are dynamics like that um, in a lot of those markets. And Josh, when you bring up yields and and therefore returns, um, what are your expected returns that you're hoping to achieve when you're going out and, and um, you know giving the the messaging to institutions? family offices, et cetera? I think it depends. So one of the, our views at Axia is that there's real estate all across the spectrum of risk from fixed income-like alternatives, which are very, with a very low yield, to equity-like alternatives, which is higher risk, higher torque, kind of think of, think of development as, as something along that spectrum. What we also think is that in the investor world, there are investors all along that spectrum. And if I were to, you know, pyramid it, I would say the biggest investors and the biggest opportunity is in that fixed income alternative realm because of the bond environment that I just kind of outlined. So 
we're going through a change right now, I think. And, you know, I noticed this with Brookfield when we used to own Brookfield, um, you know, back in my former days, that they, for the, the longest time, were giving those equity-like returns for their investors. And then all of a sudden they said, okay, no, actually a couple of years ago, they said, we're going to launch a product that's a fixed income alternative that can give you your six or, percent or, or whatever percent yield because we think that there's a lot of investor appetite for it. We take a very similar view and we think it's really going to depend. Um, so, you know, for, for the most part, I think we found our sweet spot early on right now to be in that seven to 12% range mm -hmm. um, with, with, you know, kind of 10 to 12% stuff really, really achievable, we think in, in certain types of assets that we're doing, mm -hmm. you know, but we're seeing investors coming to us from countries where they're seeing negative yields saying, you know, we can, we can do a three or a four. So it really, it really kind of depends. Got it. Uh, Josh, we'll wrap it up here. So bottom, bottom line uh, to viewers, investors listening, as it relates to continuing to step into the real estate asset, because, you know, prices have been moving higher. Um, what, what's the main message then? I mean, I think we've heard it, but, but what's the bottom line? Bottom line is uh, we think that real assets are going to continue to be a really solid alternative or not a really solid complement to a balanced portfolio and institutional as well as retail investors need exposure there. And then the, the, uh, the add-on to that is that you have to have a lens on the future when you're choosing the type of real estate and infrastructure to invest in. Okay. We will leave it on that note. I like that, the lens into the future. <laughs> Josh, great to see you. Thank you. Great to see you. Thanks a lot, Catherine. Thanks so much.